the aims of the uh, CRT project were sort of twofold with some sort of sub-issues here. One was to shore up the empirical foundation. That was a real priority. Um, lots of theories being talked about, not enough evidence. So in, and by shoring up the empirical foundation, by increasing the number of hypothesis-driven empirical studies in the cognitive science of religion area. That was one of our main aims. Um, and how would we do that? Well, one of the main ways of doing that was to try to also increase the number of researchers working in the area with quantitative method skills. Um, as I might have mentioned uh, at other points, uh, when we were putting this project together, the proposal together, I contacted the International Association for Cognitive Science of Religion. I said, hey, uh, how many people who are doing cognitive science of religion actually have any training, any background in doing science? And it was less than one-fifth. Okay? Um, but that's different now. You can look around the room at lots of people here now have had at least some training, some experience using these the scientific methods. And uh, you've uh, probably tripled the number of people in the area with this, that skill set, believe it or not. Um, so this is one of the things that we are trying to do. But also increase contact with philosophers and theologians who could increase the uh, analytical rigor in the area. Improve the tightness of theorizing so that we can catalyze new empirical studies and actually, you know, have a cumulative kind of research project. Improve the quality and quantity regarding the work regarding implications of the area. So when we started all of this, uh, well, when we were dreaming it up just a few years ago, there, you could probably count on one hand, well, I know you could, published treatments of, well, who cares? What's the point? What are the implications of this area maybe for... Uh, the justifiability of certain kinds of religious beliefs and commitments. Um, they just didn't exist. But things have been improving. Now, not all of that improvement is, is due to the CRT project, but a lot of it has been. Um, and we've also wanted to increase the number of engaged theologians and philosophers. I'm going to briefly give what I see as sort of uh, an overview of what you've been hearing, uh, what the CRT project has been up to on the empirical front, and then I will hand over to Roger just to raise a couple of comments on, on the implicational front, but just sort of so we all have a sense of uh, where we are. But let me congratulate us all um, for this really great uh, event, I think. I've really had a good time with you all, and this is the last formal event. We have a dinner later, but this is sort of the last time we all get to be together this way, and um, I just think this has been a hoot. Uh, when I go through the list of participants and everything, just a couple of little noteworthy items, uh, we have presented here roughly 40 projects, um, which is pretty good. People representing 13 different nations, four different continents, and projects taking place in at least 20 different nations and five continents. How about that? We have anthropologists, religious studies uh, scholars, theologians, philosophers, and psychologists doing work on the empirical side and on the implicational side, all kinds of different philosophers and a few people who would call themselves theologians as well, including philosophers who specialize in areas like philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, uh, philosophy of religion, philosophy of everything. Um, <laughs> and theologians with interests in practical and educational theology as well. And all of these I see as very promising uh, developments. So thank you for your participation in this. Let's see. How do I move this forward? Whoa. Something, something funny is going on here. Ah. All right. Quickly, I'm going to talk about these six different bullet points. How about that? Behind a lot of the discussions we've been hearing is a dual processing assumption about the way minds work. I just wanted to bring it, bring it to the surface so people know it's there. And I'm doing that by quoting Daniel Kahneman, the only psychologist ever to win a Nobel Prize. Um, because you don't get him for psychology, you get him for economics. And that's what he did. Uh, <laughs> but he's a psychologist, and he notes this in a 2003 review paper. The preceding sections of this paper, this review paper, elaborated a single generic proposition. Highly accessible impressions produced by System 1, 
Uh, that's an intuitive or reflexive kind of thinking system. Control judgments and preferences. Okay? Unless modified or overridden by the deliberate operations of system two. This is our reflective system. We sometimes talk about online versus offline reasoning. Um, so Kahneman is talking about this mostly in the context of decision making. But the same moral applies to the study of religion. When people are reflecting on their religious beliefs, uh, commitments, attitudes, and so forth, they draw upon that system one's outputs unless they've got a good reason not to. What that means is there's always going to be a relationship between sort of those, the reflective level and the reflexive level. They're not independent. And so learning about what's going on on that reflexive level is going to help us understand where the anchor points are in religious expression. So another way of thinking about this, what are the automatic outputs of the intuitive system one that are relevant to religious thought and action? And that's what a lot of these projects have been about. Does our maturationally natural cognition, to introduce another term, bias us toward generating or adopting some ideas or actions that we might call religious? If so, which ones? Do these biases influence religious evolution within and between cultures? Uh, how do cultural conditions either tamp down or elaborate these maturationally natural tendencies? Right? Those are some of the questions we've been dealing with. Or is it the case that uh, we might have some biases and that sort of system one, that tilts us away from some kinds of religious thoughts and actions, unless cultural factors intervene to sort of scaffold them up. And if so, which are those? Okay, it can go both ways. We'll start with these God concepts. Um, one of the, and what I've, I've tried to do in most of these slides is sort of on the, uh, what, is, what hand is this? The uh, left-hand side, um, give sort of what I took to be the state uh, roughly in 2007 and what the uh, contribution of the CRT project has been since then, okay? And in about 2007, what we were pretty comfortable with was the idea that UK and US children see aspects of the natural world, natural objects, living things, particularly animals and animal parts, as possessing functional design beyond that endorsed by parents, by adults, which suggests that it was promiscuous teleology, and that preschoolers connect functional design with someone accounting for that design, causing it, being behind it. Okay? But a question that was sort of open was, well, is this promiscuous teleology simply outgrown? Or does it persist? Does it endure? And Deb Kellerman presented for us yesterday evidence to suggest that actually, no, it's always there lurking in the background. Adults use teleofunctional uh, reasoning as a default. Okay, so that's a system one or maturationally natural output that continues to undergird reasoning uh, about the, the way the natural world is, even in US PhD holders. And we had another presentation by Elisa. Um, suggesting that Finnish adults may even take an intentional stance toward this perceived purpose under speeded response conditions. At least that's the way things seem to be pointing. Um, so it looks like there's conceptual bias to look for agency behind the natural world that may structure thought into adulthood. Um, I think that's where we are now. That would be a safe claim based on the evidence available. But we still might wonder things like, would results hold in more heavily sec secularized contexts? I still get uh, Chinese friends saying, no, well, you'd never get these results here. Well, well let's find out. Um, and in more artifact poor contexts, Deb drew the connection between artifact reasoning and uh, teleofunctional teleo reasoning. Well, what about in places where you don't have quite so rich an artifact uh, uh, environment, artifact rich environment? And, under, and, and I can't help but wonder, but under what conditions do these biases get elaborated into Gaia kind of beliefs, as uh, Deb was talking about, versus designing gods? Because it seems like you've got two possibilities there uh, of culturally elaborating the same kinds of impulses, maybe. Or maybe not, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up here. I had to write, do something this afternoon. Of course, there are other kinds of attributes of gods. They aren't just creators. Um, in 2007, at least, I was beating the drum that children assume that all agents have super attributes and learn to pair those back. 
uh, for many humans, animals, and many gods, but may, may maintain superattribution for some gods. That is, overattribution of, or attribution of super properties is the default stance, and then they sort of learn to pair those back, rather than starting with a very human, limited kind of thing and learning to amplify it for gods. But there's some evidence that if ignorant, um, maybe children overattribute ignorance. Okay, so there's some data that was challenging that kind of uh, just unlimited uh, general tendency to overattribute. That, and maybe in some conditions we don't see that. And there was pretty weak evidence, one way or another, about what children think about the immortality of gods and other aspects of mind, other than just sort of perception and belief that's maybe guided by perception. Well, two studies that were presented here uh, give us a little new evidence on this front. Uh, Emma Burdett's work uh, with Jewish or Israeli children suggests that, uh, well, they sort of confirm what we knew before, but in an ignorance task, she was even showing that very young children disambiguate between very different kinds of agents, and there seems to be this bias toward over-attribution. And not just on those knowledge and perception tasks, but also for memory tasks and on immortality, suggesting they get God's immortality before they get human mortality, um, which is interesting. And then Brad gave us evidence that... Uh, that four-year-olds are able to distinguish between God and dog, even when they're not really passing the false belief test. They're already distinguishing between those two groups, and they're treating uh, their invisible friends, and their visible friends as godlike. I find the invisible friends they're being treated in this godlike fashion interesting, because there's no reason it would have to go that way unless there's some kind of a bias in that direction, a natural bias. Um, they could have treated them more like the dog, for instance, and don't, importantly. But we might wonder if these kinds of biases, these uh, sort of default assumption to, uh, default stance to over-attribute, that it's maybe computationally easier to think of super-knowing, super-perceiving agents, is that outgrown? Um, or is it always lingering there in the background? Um, Richard Swinburne would tell us it's always there. These kinds of gods are simpler, conceptually simpler. But, yeah, maybe, maybe not. In 2007, we thought uh, intuitive dualism, uh, well, there was Paul Bloom talking about intuitive dualism a lot, and, but a little bit of uh, evidence around and other people starting to pick, it, pick up on this, this theme that we are intuitive dualists, readily reasoning about minds and bodies is separable. But as Ted pointed out, um, those uh, from uh, cultural studies and anthropology would have, uh, are mostly telling us that mind-body dualism is a Western construction and uh, everybody else is monists and it's the Westerners who are sort of inflicting this on the rest of the world, this dualism, and it's all Descartes' fault, um, oddly enough. Uh, but people were starting to raise the question about, well, what about soul? What about spirit? How does that... How uh, do those concepts interact with these sort of mind and body concepts? Um, so we had lots of, lots of different models spinning around and uh, sort of patchy evidence. I'm afraid we still have lots of different models spinning around and patchy evidence, but things have improved. Uh, we've learned things like that attributes previously regarded as bodily might not be. Um, Jing, uh, in his study of uh, Chinese afterlife beliefs, and Emma Cohen in studies she's done in the UK and Brazil looking at um, uh, how people reason about themselves when not embodied, um, both find that some perceptual attributes, for instance, just seem to pair off from the others. So hearing and seeing seem to be mo more essential than, or sorry, well, maybe more essential, but uh, higher, discontinu higher continuity when leaving the body than tasting, feeling, touching. Um, maybe not surprisingly once, once you say it, but in, but, it, but in these previous studies, the earlier studies, it was assumed, well, those are bodily kinds of things, and they go with the body. Well, it turns out that maybe three of the big five senses go with the body, and two don't. So the story is getting a little more complicated. Um, Rebecca and Aaron are starting to produce some evidence that soul may ride on this sort of person essentialism instead of on simple theory of mind, or at least it interacts with theory of mind in an interesting way. 
Uh, we're learning about how spirit is treated. Uh, uh, Myra presented has some evidence that spirit is treated similarly to mine in Brazil. But there's still an open question that she and Melanie are exploring about whether or not there's this sense of spirit as life force um, that has a different kind of uh, folk uh, reasoning behind it. And Ted has uh, provided us yet more evidence that uh, this sort of dualism is not just a Western construct, but we even see it in ancient China. We clearly need more empirical and analytical work here. I see this as a real fruitful area for the psychologists and philosophers to join up. Um, we psychologists need help here. Um, you guys have thought long and hard about these mind-body kinds of issues, and you know what lots of different models might be there, so then maybe we can go out and test. Um, but we need that kind of collaboration, I think, in this area. That intuitive dualism is often seen as a springboard for afterlife beliefs. Um, but here again, we've, um, we've had a, a real division in the, in the field. Several different accounts sort of uh, available on the buffet of how to make sense of uh, afterlife beliefs. No one's doubting that afterlife beliefs are fairly common. We know that they get elaborated to lesser or greater extents in different places. But why in the world are they so recurrent? Well, one, one class, of, class of accounts is that, well, they're intuitive, that they're actually a default stance. They're, they're wholly intuitive because of some way that our minds are wired up. And this is Paul Bloom's position, and I take it that uh, this is pretty close to Jesse Baring's position, though uh, he emphasizes simulation constraint. That makes afterlife beliefs uh, rather intuitive, or at least uh, discontinuity, full discontinuity, kind of hard to imagine. I can't imagine not imagining um, that kind of idea. Um, other uh, models have been proposed. The middle one there, or the second one down, is sort of a, a Boyer gloss. Um, but both that and the third there uh, just suggests that afterlife uh, beliefs are not fully intuitive, they're minimally counterintuitive. Okay, they're roughly intuitive, but it takes some little tweak there. And that's the position of Estudian Harris, as I understand them. And so we might wonder, well, who's right, Bering or Estudian Harris? And the two do argue with each other a lot. Um, well, we had uh, at least four uh, presentations relevant to this. Natalie uh, has given us some evidence that Ecuadorian children, um, well, Ecuadorian pre-life beliefs are actually greater in younger kids and decrease with age, a similar pattern to what Jesse found in thinking about afterlife beliefs, um, that they sort of actually decrease with age, which would be odd if you're not already, I mean, if you are enculturated into them. That's a strange thing. Um, but I think Natalie actually has a slight improvement over some of Jesse's studies in that Jesse's could have been explained by, well, kids just are confused and they're sort of guessing, and then they sort of give them up, which makes it look like they're decreasing over age, but they're just moving from confusion to a position. Natalie's, they really do look like, no, they've got pre-life beliefs. They're sort of above chance, as it were, and then move to below chance kind of reasoning, as, if I understood her uh, studies correctly. And uh, Jude and Sue, Beck and Locke, have uh, given us a really valuable study, I think, um, challenging uh, Astudy and Harris's conclusion that um, you need to be religiously primed to, believe, to use afterlife concepts. Okay? That rather, it might be the other way around. It might be that you need biologically primed to not use them uh, by providing that third, a nice control condition, a non-prime. Um, we get a really interesting result there that's kind of exciting and, and changes the landscape. Um, Jing showed us that, co that contrary to the, their explicit claims, uh, continuity judgments in China are similar to those in the United States that have been found, which I find fascinating. Um, even though the explicit beliefs are, are, are importantly different. Um, and Aniko uh, found that strong continuity judgments uh, in the Balinese uh, context, regardless of the prime, uh, but, but it enters an interesting observation about spiritual bodies that can really complicate this sort of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, when we take sort of, uh, uh, oh yeah, bodies don't work anymore. Oh yeah, which bodies? 
right? <laughs> these bodies or the new body. And of course, this isn't just in the Balinese context, right? Even in the Christian tradition, the afterlife talks about a, a resurrected body. It's an embodied kind of thing, uh, which I, I guess, uh, suppose, pushes uh, us a little bit away from some forms of dualism. But lots of interesting questions here. Um, if I had to uh, evaluate this at this point, I'd say, well, the, this round of evidence, much to my surprise, I will tell you, actually seems to side more with Bering than with uh, Studi and Harris. Uh, at least that's what it looks like to me, but I think a lot more needs to be done. All right, the old theological correctness idea. This is what got me started in this area, and it's just this dissociation between reflective theological beliefs, system two, and more anthropomorphic online representations, system one. Um, I had gathered a fair amount of evidence that I think it's going on. One of my studies that uh, many people had forgotten about was, was in India, um, where in addition to replicating this, that sort of dissociation, um, I found uh, in post hoc analyses an age effect. It looked like uh, older people were actually more anthropomorphic than kids online. Um, I wasn't too troubled by that in the uh, Indian context because there's, there are a lot of images around it. In another study, um, I had some evidence that Protestants, at least, who are exposed to images during worship, images of God, in this case often Jesus or little doves for the Holy Spirit or whatever it is, actually had more anthropom showed more anthropomorphism online as well. So I wasn't too interested in it at that point, but uh, Travis has gone back and replicated the study with a much larger and a much more interesting and I think stronger data set. Um, and he found some really interesting things that the degree of religious practice did influence anthropomorphism. It increased it, um, which isn't what he was after, but I mean decreased it, right? which was not what he was after in this particular population. Education decreased it, but age increased it uh, once you control for each other. Right? This is a multiple regression kind of model. Um, and Helen, uh, I, maybe she would think, why would you put this in theological correctness? I think was showing us in, in a completely different kind of task that religious imagination seems to be constrained by system one kind of cognition. And this is in sort of imagining possible religious entities. Uh, what I want to draw your attention to here is this age effect. Um, so Travis managed to replicate this age effect that I just find fascinating, partly because I'm not sure what to make of it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture something. Um, but we might also wonder, is, is this kind of constraint uh, on, these, on the development of these concepts due to maturationally natural or is it practice natural cognition? That we're not sure. We just know that's sort of automatic in, in some sense. All right, MCI theory. There's so much presented here relevant to this, I had to change my slide format a little bit. I know I don't need to say much about it, but I will say there are sort of a couple of different wrinkles on this. There's the 1994 version that Boyer trotted out in his 1994 book. If something is too counterintuitive, it's unlikely to spread. That's basic claim number one. And I, th I put it up there because we often forget it. The focus is often on, well, if it's minimally counterintuitive, just a little bit counterintuitive, does that have a transmission advantage? That's claim number two. But let's not forget the, his big observation, which is if it's too counterintuitive, it's hard to spread. Because that's actually the most important backdrop, I think. And it's not, in some ways, it's so commonsensical that we miss the point, right? The, the common sense, well, sure, if things are co complex, they're hard to remember. Yeah, but complex on what matrix? Boyer offered a matrix for complexity, and it was intuitiveness. It was sort of the measuring, the standard there. You deviate too far from that. That's what we call complexity, Okay. Not just adding more hands on the god. Well, that's complex. It has more parts. But actually violating this sort of two, system one, core intuitive kind of cognition, that's what makes something um, too complex. And that that's pan-cultural. 
I don't think there's been any serious doubt about that thesis. Okay, that is basic claim number one. And there's some experimental evidence in support of it. Um, but claim number two, if too intuitive, it's less likely to attract attention. It's too boring, it's too mundane. And so that doesn't spread very well either. In 2001, Boyer elaborated this story to say, well, it's actually even better if counterintuitive, the counterintuitive properties increase the inferential potential of the concept. So just any counterintuitive idea isn't any good. We need something that really matters to people. Mentalistic agents are one of the candidates he trots out, particularly those with what he calls strategic information. Information that matters to how we negotiate maybe our social exchanges, those that have uh, moral valence and so forth. All right? And I think, you know, when, when we get to about 2008, the evidence for the basic claim, number one, was pretty good. Okay, I mean, not a lot of work done there because no one cared too much, and it seems too easy to show. And number two actually was pretty mixed, uh, the data, I think. But almost essentially nothing was done on the elaboration, the sort of 2001, which is really odd and kind of should be embarrassing for the field in a way. Um, Boyer updates his theory in 2001, and everybody's still testing the 1994 version. Um, me too. But this is what's happened since. Out of concerns for really rangy operationalization of counterintuitiveness, including some of my own early studies, uh, I, I, I tried to do a systematic um, coding and quantifying scheme for counterintuitiveness. Because I think we were, in those early studies, we weren't all studying the same thing. We might have put the label counterintuitive on it, but I had no confidence that we were actually all measuring the same kind of dynamic. And that could account for the variety of, uh, of, of results that we got. So I tried to shore that up and uh, run that by Boyer so that I was representing his theory fairly. Um, he seemed to think it was all right. Uh, and then we did some uh, uh, textual analyses. So that's what Barrett Burdett and Porter refers to. Uh, we did a... Um, uh, a coding of folk tales from all over the world through sort of a, a quasi-random sampling and then coding, blind coding uh, situation. And we found that Boyer's uh, hypothesized cognitive optimum, at least in these texts, seemed to be right around one. That is, about one counterintuitive feature is, was the mode and the median for what you get uh, in a folk tale uh, for properties. So things are pretty simple, that is, that seem to be spread by oral. Uh, tradition. Uh, Justin Gregory then did a uh, one of these uh, recall study replications using my coding quantifying scheme with um, UK subjects, and uh, he found that intuitive items were better remembered than minimally counterintuitive items on immediate recall. A week later, the, there was no difference, but there was a significant difference at one week. Okay, this looks like a clear failure to replicate evidence running contrary to Boyer's predictions. This effect was especially prevalent among participants over the age of 25. But here was the weird thing, is counterintuitive concepts were better remembered than intuitive ones for participants younger than 25 at delayed recall. No difference at immediate recall, a week later, the young people remember the counterintuitive ones better, the older people remember the intuitive ones better. What's going on there? Um, he also had factored out thought-provokingness. Note that sounds a little bit like Boyer's idea of inferential potential that he had added in in 2001. Gregory tried to neutralize that effect. When you do that, you get this sort of muddy counterintuitiveness um, well, this, this muddy uh, memory effect. So maybe it's the case that inferential potential was driving the effect all along. That's a possibility. And in fact, when he looked at uh, inferential potential, or as measured by thought-provokingness, as a predictor of recall, it was a significant predictor. <coughs> but then what happened? At that point, I was about to give up, at least on the full-bodied version of uh, Boyer's 1994 version of minimal counterintuitiveness. But then uh, uh, Ryan Hornbeck, also working on the project but not here, set up a, a lab in Second Life. 
Uh, people familiar with Second Life, so this is one of these virtual worlds. It's an immersive environment. People go in with their little avatars and do all kinds of interesting things. Um, but he set up a lab there that had displays that visually displayed either intuitive or counterintuitive things. No verbal material here. No narrative context, no narrative elaboration, no worries about, well, we've got to make sure all the characters, none of that. These are actually very similar to the kinds of displays that uh, were used in the uh, baby experiments that established the sort of core knowledge that the whole theory was driven, uh, derived from. And uh, Hornbeck had two different kinds of samples, English speakers, and I put it that way because this is a global sample who happen to be English speakers. Most of these are American or UK citizens, but they're from all over the place. And then Mandarin speakers. So you had two different samples, two different languages. Um, and it was a surprise recall. They didn't know they were going to do a recall task after this. That's another difference from these previous studies. Um, strictly controlled uh, exposure times as well. So what happened there? Well, there, unfortunately, or fortunately, minimally counterintuitive concepts were remembered uh, approximately the same, recalled at the same rate as intuitive ones at immediate recall. But the intuitive concepts had a faster de degradation rate. And in fact, over the sort of one-week period, this is another interesting wrinkle, is he had people recalling at different intervals over one week, and then you could run a regression on the recall interval and what they recalled. And what he found is that um, there was a, a not surprising relationship between uh, degradation. The longer it takes for you to recall it, the less you remember on only the intuitive items, not the counterintuitive items. Flat line. If they remembered it at time one, they were bound to remember it at time two, even if it was a week later. But the intuitive ones shh, fell right off. And he found an age effect. Okay? His younger participants remembered the counterintuitive concepts better than his older participants. Then, how, how surprised am I when Sasha actually finds another age effect looking at MCI recall? Okay? She uh, found a recall advantage for mentalistic agents, but not for counterintuitive, mentally counterintuitive concepts. Mentalistic agents being one of those things that Boyer had picked out as, oh, maybe it needs this added on. Um, but this recall of counterintuitive concepts was modulated by age. And again, the older people are doing a poorer job at recalling these things. Uh, James added some other variables. So we've got uh, inferential potential thrown in here. We've got uh, ment mentalistic or not, and then James threw in um, actually whether there was norm-violating content or improbable uh, escapes, and he did a transmission paradigm instead of just a recall paradigm, which was gratifying to see, um, with a failure to replicate the uh, counterintuitiveness effect. Uh, so, <laughs> I know a lot of data here. How do we make sense of it? A lot of us are scratching our heads over this. So this is, I think this is how to summarize it. Minimally counterintuitive, uh, delayed recall, not immediate, but delayed recall, and transmission advantages have been shown with and without narrative context now, with, with and without elaboration, with and without words, and with many different cultural backgrounds. And I am including the earlier studies now. But failures to replicate have been easy to come by. This suggests to me that this effect is not very robust. Okay, that's my take on the state of that theory. So it might be there, but it's, it's, it looks to me to be a pretty small effect size. So it seems like that basic story, the 1994 story, certainly needs a boost from the 2001 considerations like inferential potential, moral or normative content and relevance. And we might also consider the ecological validity issues of the kind of paradigms that we've been using. It's not the case that we would expect that the generation of counterintuitive ideas would be equal with the generation of intuitive ideas and that they would be presented in equal numbers in a particular narrative. And other folks have looked at just those kinds of dynamics. Um, but I'm really curious, is, is, what, about, what about these age effects? Three different people have come up with it with three different, in three different places, three different stimuli sets. What's that about? Um, could it be that really it's the young people that are driving a, counter, a minimal counterintuitive effect? All right? 
Uh, could this be why young people are wild about fantasy, science fiction, and all of this other stuff? You know, uh, before I move on from that, I can't help but think that it joins up, too, with the uh, theological correctness age effect. But I'm not exactly sure what to make of that yet. Uh, let's see. I think... Um, let me try a proposal, though, for you. What if it's the case that um, in conceptual development, in the first few years of life, I'm figuring out my, the furniture of the world, the ontologies, uh, these basic causal cognition. I get that in place somewhere. Uh, each sort of domain is at a different kind of age. And then I'm, at, I'm, I'm keenly interested in those exceptions to the rules. And I'm going to be keenly interested in things that are exceptions to the rules of the world until uh, an age where I should have encountered them all by now. And then I don't need to do that anymore. I'm sort of personifying the, sort of the cognitive system. But could it be something like that going on? And could that account for both of these sets of findings? Sure looks to me like if it's the case that once you are entering sort of uh, young adulthood, okay, you're past the late adolescence, and then we talk about that at around 23 these days. Uh, we developmental psychologists say adolescence goes to about age 23, oddly enough. Once you're starting to get into adulthood, um, 25, 26 years old, which incidentally we know uh, fluid intelligence starts to decline and things like that, which is why mathematicians usually peak when they're about 25, 26 years old, and after that it's downhill. Um, Whereas philosophers keep getting better and better. <laughs> well, we can't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> Just write it down. Just so. What if it's the case that, um, well, if it's the case that older people, that means adults, um, just find counterintuitive concepts too taxing on working memory. I suspect that that would actually account for both of these effects. Both the anthrop increased online anthropomorphism in the, um, in the uh, uh, theological correctness kind of narrative comprehension studies and these kinds of recall effects. Um, but I'm just throwing that out as a possibility. It's, it's at least an interesting phenomenon that we're getting, getting these age effects. Did not anticipate those. Um, one of, the, uh, one of the claims that I've heard over and over again, and I'm almost finished. Uh, thanks for your patience. Um, I just feel like we have to put it all in one package eventually. Um, one of the things that we've been accused of over and over again is that CSR is not, it just doesn't, doesn't make any application, doesn't say anything about cultural particulars or historical particulars. It doesn't do that. It's always talking about... Why do people believe in gods or explaining religion? The whole thing, it never talks about particulars. Um, I've heard that complaint way a number of times. And you are about to, uh, coming up here in the uh, Journal of the American Academy of Religion, uh, read a paper uh, that says not only doesn't it do it, it can't do it. Or at least the way that cognitive science of religion works actively discourages engagement with historical or cultural materials. Ted's thinking, whoa, uh-oh. Uh, can I say who it is? Or I guess it's okay. I mean, it's, it's an accepted paper. It's going to be by uh, Nat Barrett. No relation. Um, okay. So not only doesn't, don't these CSR do, people do this stuff, you just can't do it. Never mind that Cohen's done it, and Lisdorf's done it, and Malley's done it, and Ted Vile's done it, and other people have done it, Harvey Whitehouse has done it. Never mind that. You can't do it. I just find it really gratifying that so many of you have now done it, too. And you can send that to him. It's out. <laughs> but really, I mean, there's some really interesting and creative applications to very particular, culturally sensitive kinds of problems, or historically sensitive kinds of issues. Don't you think, Rich? I mean, we're just, we were gabbing about this. And it's just really exciting um, that you're adding the kind of theoretical and methodological rigor from this sort of cognition and culture approach to these very particular kinds of issues that you know so much about uh, through your humanist kind of study of these things. Okay. The second sort of uh, half of comments, Roger wasn't, is not going to talk as long as I did. He said so. Um, <laughs> 
was to is to really to increase the implicational and analytical rigor of the area. And I do want to say before Roger gets up that you guys are already doing that. Um, the Believing Primate uh, was mentioned earlier. Fantastic book that's already big steps forward. Um, but we're starting to see journal articles show up too. Um, uh, whether I agree with them or not, it's fun to see philosophers and theologians getting engaged with this. So another, uh, let's see, uh, Aku and Vasala and David Leach, right, have something coming out in Zygon. Isn't that right, Aku, wherever you are? Um, yeah. Yeah, isn't that right? One coming out in religious studies and one in Zygon. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's really encouraging. And uh, James Van Slyke had uh, a recent piece in Theology and Science where he says CSR is, is hopeless uh, in many respects. Uh, uh, and we even funded that. So, uh. <laughs> is that refundable? <laughs> when I find him. <laughs> but I'll, I'll let Roger go from here. So, Roger. Right. <clears throat> yes, right. I did promise I wouldn't talk as, as long as Justin said he wanted to, so I, I won't. So you will get to dinner in time. Uh, just picking up a bit on what Justin was saying, um, you remember he started off by mentioning System 1 and System 2, the uh, intuitive and the reflective, and I think that's a very important distinction. Um, one of the papers we had earlier on this week um, was beginning, I thought, to almost to blur the distinction by saying, well, perhaps the fact that there were Epicurean philosophers who were, in fact, uh, arguing against purpose was almost an argument against some of the arguments that we are, do naturally see purpose. Uh, but I do think that rather muddles up these two levels. And I think that a lot of CSR is entirely looking at System 1, what, in fact, is naturally there, what we find it easy to think of, what, in a sense, the architecture of the human mind is providing us with, what kind of concepts do we naturally adopt. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't go on and stand back and then be philosophical and think, now, is this right? Is this true? Is this good? Um, we may believe this naturally, we may desire it naturally, but that doesn't mean that we have to uh, accept it or we have to act in accordance with the desires. Um, <clears throat> I was um, talking a few weeks ago at a conference with Richard Dawkins in the front row making notes and he was summing up at the end and I was rather expecting him to query some of the things I'd said about CSR but I was very interested to see that actually he did accept or, or most of it I think that I mean he is uh, I mean what, what he would be wanting to say is that he would draw different conclusions from the fact that nevertheless we do naturally find ourselves disposed to think and want certain things. So anyway, CSR itself will tell us, therefore, what's natural. Is religion natural, to sum it up? Uh, one might say, yes, it is. But that doesn't say, well, of course, religion is a very contested content, um, concept, and I'm not going to get into that. But all of the kind of dispositions that add up to things that we count as religious are all there naturally, as we've seen over the last few days. Um, they're even perhaps universal across time and space. There is such a thing, then, as human nature. Now, when I started off writing philosophy, um, actually a lot of sociologists particularly uh, denied that there was such a thing as human nature. There were constructions of ideas about what was natural according to different societies and cultures. Uh, but there wasn't a human nature underpinning societies, a thing that I did argue for very strongly in various writings. Now, of course, particularly with the Human Genome pro um, Project and uh, research, the pendulum has begin, begun to swing. Indeed, it has been swinging for quite a long time in the other direction. Even social scientists now are beginning to look to Darwin. So, in a sense, we're emphasising something that a lot of disciplines are emphasising, that as humans we're not all just tabulae rasae, we're not blank slates, we are born with certain tendencies, and cognitive science of religion shows how religion enters into that. So there are tendencies and dispositions, that, and they all go to build up what we call religion. They are there, it is a fact. 
But what we say about them, whether we should follow them or not, as I said, well, that's system too, and that we can reflect on them, and we may, as Richard Dawkins would now doubt believe, think what we ought to grow out of them. They're things we ought to put aside. But it nevertheless is important to separate these levels and uh, uh, t to see that the fact of the kind of beings we are and what we're to make of that philosophically are two separate questions. Now, that itself, I think, has profound implications for more general issues, which I'll just touch on, but I've been writing quite a bit recently about religion in public life and religious freedom. And I do think, actually, a lot of this is relevant to that, because um, so many people nowadays think that religion is a private matter, it's an individual matter, it's something that can be marginalised in society. Societies, particularly Western societies, can be neutral to religion. We don't have to bother about it. It's something that a few odd individuals may want to do, um, just as some people go off and play golf on a Sunday morning, uh, but it's nothing that is really central or important. And I think CSR is really saying, actually, it's a very central part of human nature. It's something that is going to be very central to the way that humans think. We do naturally think in terms of purpose, of minds, of disembodied agency, etc. We are natural dualists. Now, as I say, that doesn't mean philosophically that we will be dualists, uh, but, but that's the default option. That's the starting point. That's the way we find it easier to think. And so uh, I think that means that if you're looking just from a political point of view, religion is going to be, in its various forms, in its many forms, still their central stage. We can't ignore it. And uh, um, if, if I can make grand assertions, I, I mean, as some people have been pointing out, uh, foreign policy of nations which doesn't take seriously the fact that religion is going to be a powerful motivating factor in other nations' foreign policy, is discounting something important. So uh, religion is there, like it or not. A lot of atheists would say, well, yeah, we don't like it, but nevertheless it's there, it's something we've got to deal with. It will be resurgent if, in fact, it sat on. You'll find, in a sense, that's uh, what's happened in Eastern Europe over the, the last few years. Uh, you'll find that uh, an atheist country can't remain atheist forever. Now, some people may think, well, that's because rationality isn't being allowed to control people enough. Um, but uh, at any rate, uh, it's recognising the way that human nature can go. I would also want to emphasise the importance of religious freedom, and uh, uh, that's partly the ability to reflect on these things. And to, religious freedom is the freedom to reject religion as, the, as well as the freedom to accept it. But because of all of this is so central in what it is to be human, the ability to be free to act in accord or against it is also important. So atheism isn't the default option, but that isn't to dismiss it. It's just to say that it's at the level of philosophy and theology, of science. These are all issues concerning rational reflection, reflection particularly on first-order impulses. And uh, it's nothing, it's not as a, let me again say, it's nothing to say that these things are true or false or that our desires are good or bad. They're there and then we have to decide what to do about it. We're constrained. That's what goes to make up our nature. But I myself would say uh, that we are free um, this again is a philosophical assertion though, we'll find that naturalism, reductionism, determinism, various forms of materialism, um, tend to go together. And they're often in the background of debates about CSR, and uh, fair enough, but they shouldn't be, in a sense, fed in at the beginning. There should be a conclusion, uh, a part of the philosophical argument about the significance of some of these things. You can't just... It kind of feed it in at the beginning and say, well, let's adopt a naturalist assumption and therefore the conclusion is there isn't a God because you've assumed that at the very beginning. You've assumed that these desires can't, in fact, have a real object. Indeed, I would want to say that naturalism and reductionism and uh, things like that 
uh, are in fact ultimately very self-destructive because they're philosophical concepts and insofar as they're in fact um, saying that uh, everything is determined, that in a sense there are no free-floating ideas and so on, they're undermining themselves because insofar as you're saying that we can't actually rationally decide what's true, uh, then they themselves are putting themselves in jeopardy. They are very corrosive, and this was brought home to me the other day at a conference um, when uh, I was answering questions from, amongst others, Patricia Churchill. Now, those of you who know philosophy will know that she and her husband have been proponents for many years of um, a reductive uh, materialism, a reductive physicalism, an eliminative materialism, which wants to eliminate, in a sense, all our um, mental capacities, all our mental understanding. Um, for her, neuroscience is, in a sense, the philosophical answer to, to everything. And in one of her questions, um, I said to her, but that means that you're attacking the whole cognitive science of religion. And she said, well, yes, of course, because she's against cognitive science. She's against everything that talks about beliefs and desires because she doesn't believe in beliefs and desires. She only believes in what neuroscience can deal with. Um, but she is believing that, and therefore the whole thing is getting undermined. Uh, uh, her, I mean, it's uh, what is the status of her own position. So those things can overreach themselves, but, but let's not, uh, in fact, uh, underestimate the power of those philosophical positions, because uh, like a lot of science, it's one bit of science trying to do down another bit. So it's the neuroscientists, or at least through the mouths of philosophers, trying to do down cognitive psychology. I would say that science assumes human freedom and rationality. Without it, it gets undermined itself. CSR tells us about the kind of people we are. It has implications for what we might expect to go on in society, and therefore it does tell us something important from a political point of view too. But it doesn't tell us what's true or what's false, and that's the difference, in a sense, between studying level one and level two. It's the difference between empirical research and philosophical reflection on its significance. <laughs>